0: Thanks for listening to Beyond the Summit, a podcast by the Keene 7th Avenue Church. We're in a new series called As It Is in Heaven on Earth. And it's a series focused on one of Jesus' most prolific teachings on prayer. It's found in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. We're going verse by verse, line by line through the Lord's Prayer. And we're learning along the way about how and where heaven touches earth and how prayer changes our lives. Excited for what this series is already doing in our community. Let's dive in to today's episode. We're in week four of our As It Is series, talking on prayer. Uh, Week four of many a week. We're going to hit, I think, probably about the end of April is how long we're going to be talking about prayer. A full another two months that we're going to be in this. And we've spent some time in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. So if you want to open your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. And for the past two weeks, we've been looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. We first looked at the hypocrites, how they pray publicly for an appearance and for a show. And God says, they're going to get what they deserve. And Jesus also used the example of the the pagans who babble on and on and on and on and on in prayer. He says, don't be like them. And what we've learned from those two passages is that we come to God in the secret place. We get alone by ourselves in silent and solitude, and we sit and wait for God to listen. The story is told of uh, a young boy who's, who's saying his prayers one night, and it's a couple of weeks before Christmas. And he's saying his prayers out loud and is uh, kneeled down by his bed, and his dad's there with him. And he begins to pray, and he prays for mom, and he prays for daddy, and he uh, prays for family, and, and what's going on in his life. And at the end of his prayer, he clears his throat and practically yells, And, dear God, would you please give me a bicycle? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the dad having an opportunity, a moment to, you know, talk to his son about prayer. He says, son, you know, I know this wonderful prayer, you know, posture and, and, and place. We're doing that. But I couldn't help but notice at the end that you yelled out this prayer. Do you, do you think that, that God has a hard time hearing you? And the, the son said, no, absolutely. I know God can hear me. But grandma's a little bit hard of hearing. And she was in the other room. And I want to make sure she knows what my prayer is. Perhaps the right place, perhaps the right posture, but content and tone, we could work on that one a little bit, right? That's what Jesus moves to and addresses in the rest of the Lord's prayer or the model prayer that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. We can find ourselves in the right place of prayer, in the right posture of prayer, but what is the content of our prayers and what is the tone. I hope he got his bike. I don't know. Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13. We'll read the Lord's Prayer, uh, spend a little bit kind of kind of forest for the trees, and then we're going to isolate one or two lines from this passage today. Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13 say this, Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth As it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So, in the New Living Translation, it sounds a little bit more modern, flows off the tongue a little bit. You probably know this prayer in the King James Version that's got some these and thous and that big word hallowed that we don't even use anymore, right? For a moment, I want to look at the structure of this prayer because it begins with three asks that are specifically to God and about God and four that are about us and the providing of our needs. The first three are this. God, would your name, your kingdom, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That's the beginning of this prayer. It sets it up that God, would you do you here on this earth? And while you're doing you here on this earth, would you give us what you need, what we need? Would you forgive us? Would you lead us? And would you deliver us? Prayer, in a lot of ways, is a supplication before God. Would you do what you do best? Your name, your kingdom, and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you give us? Would you forgive us? Would you lead us? And would you deliver us? It's an asking of God. And that's the structure. That's the overview. And we're going to spend the next few weeks just kind of going line by line on this passage. I, maybe some of you took anatomy and physiology while you were in, in, in college or maybe in high school. I remember I did. And it came time that towards the end of the semester, you know, you got the, the big vat of formaldehyde that's got these bags inside of them that have the little fetal pigs inside of them. You remember those? Uh, and you pull them out and you put them on a tray and, and then you begin to take a knife and you begin to just dissect and you pull the skin back and you just, okay, I'll pause you the gory, uh, the gory details, okay? Uh, some of you, like the classmates, I really enjoyed it. Some of my classmates were looking at me like you're looking at me and just kind of like, I don't, I don't know if I want to go there, right? And you dig down dig deep into the pig and you understand its anatomy and it helps you understand the human body. What we're going to be doing with prayer is just the same except without the stink and the knives. Okay, is that fair? We're going to be taking and just dissecting and piecing apart what the Lord's prayer is. So Matthew chapter six, verse nine reads this way. Our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. We're going to spend the rest of our time in this passage today and unpack the goodness that is found in these words. The first line, our father in heaven. When Jesus utters the first words of this prayer, using it as a model prayer for his disciples, what he's doing is reminding his disciples that we have a relationship with the divine. There is an assurance that the divine relationship is accessible to you. It is not the God someplace else. No, our father, there's possession in that language that you have an opportunity to know God and God knows you. God is yours. God is ours. He's on our side. And we can lay claim to it right in the beginning of this prayer. Ellen White in the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, puts it this way, page 104. The very first step in approaching God is to know and believe the love that he has to us. For it is through the drawing of his love that we are led to come to him. Prayer begins with recalibration. It's coming before God. It's recognizing and asking the question, who is God and who am I? We must remember who we're talking to. We're not talking to somebody that's not interested in our our lives or not invested in what's going on and what we do. He's not somebody in a far off place that's inaccessible. No, he is our father, the father that is in heaven and everything that comes along with that identity is accessible to us through prayer. Prayer begins with an alignment uh, with God before we say anything else. It's aligning ourselves with him. Think about it this way. You remember the time in history that, that GPS systems weren't in our cars? I know it's hard to remember that. It was a few years ago. You didn't have the dash. You just had the radio, right? And there was also the time in history that we didn't have them on our phones in our pockets. But there was the time where you could go to, to Best Buy or an electronics store, and you could buy that little GPS system. That's like the kind of little Garmin or something like that, right? And either suction cup to your windshield or kind of weight down on, on your dashboard. And you remember... I, I grew up doing visitations with my dad, we were printing MapQuest maps, okay? So you, before you go on the trip or go find some, let's print out this map, and then we gotta print out that map, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat like, okay, uh, let's, I think we make a turn that way. Like, we made it to most of the visits, I think. Uh, but then there was a time, the, the evolution of the, the GPS system, right? And you know that there's a moment when you're ready to go into the GPS, and you, and you type in the address, and you're ready to go, and you push go, and it says, recalculating recalibrating, can't talk to the satellites right now, give me a minute for a second, right? And this was several years ago before GPS systems were a little, a little uh, had a little bit more beef to them and it was just starting and it was a little iffy sometimes whether you were gonna get a signal. I remember we uh, took a trip to South Carolina, Texas, South Carolina, we revisiting my sister and, and uh, we, we got off the plane and we had taken that Garmin with us, that GPS system, right? And we, we get out of the plane, get to the rental car, remember cars don't necessarily have these all the time, set it up in the car, turn it on, and we're ready to put it into the address, but the GPS system is like, hold on. You put me to sleep in Texas, and I wake up in South Carolina. There is, there, the roads are different, let me tell you. The satellites look different to me. I just, I need a moment to figure out where I am in this world. Where I was before is not where I am now, and I need to recalibrate for a moment. I think there's a lesson to be learned from our GPS systems, and I think you're picking up on it. That when we come to God and prayer, there is a moment of recalibration. That we're living one way under a certain set of rules and under a certain kingdom, and we come before God and we say, our Father in heaven. We're connecting to different satellites. We're connecting to somebody else. We are recalibrating our lives. We're decentering what is drama for us and recentering on the God of the universe. And He has a way to position you in your life that's beyond anything inside of your control. Looking to Him for direction, you will never get lost. You may go on adventures, but there's a difference between being lost and going on an adventure, right? That's what I thought. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, the question comes to mind. That we understand the positional relationship between God saying our father in heaven, that type of thing, right? But what does it mean for God to be our father? Because he's God and we're human and and what's the connection there? One of the concepts in in scripture when you go to try to find and understand something is to look at where it's used first in the Bible and see if that has any bearing on, on, on the meaning that the gospel writers are using. The very first place in scripture where God takes on the identity of a father is found in Exodus. You remember the story Moses in front of the burning bush and holy ground, Moses, take off your sandals, all of that. Moses, I've got something for you. You need to go to to, to Pharaoh and tell them, let my people go. Here's here's what happens. Exodus chapter four, verse 21. And the Lord said, told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I'm empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Whole another sermon for a whole nother time. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says. Israel is what? My firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. Looking forward to the last plague that would fall on Egypt. God shows himself to be a father to Israel. And this imagery that Jesus uses when he talks to his disciples of of God being our father is not lost on them. They understand what it means for God to be father, but it is perhaps distant to them. That they're not fully understanding what it means to be father because think about it for a moment. Children of Israel in slavery under Egypt, God says, you're my firstborn son. Whoa, God, what gives? Fast forward several thousand years. Jews are living in their own land, but it's occupied territory. They're under the oppression of Rome. Yeah, God's our father, but how are you taking care of us like a firstborn son? What gives? But notice for a moment in this passage, the context where God is, is breaking all of this down. He says, you're my firstborn son in the context of slavery. And what's the very next thing God does through Moses is pull his children out of slavery. God, our father, means that you and I are no longer slaves. Don't believe me? Paul says it. Galatians chapter 4 verse 7. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. God says you're no longer slaves. You are my Children, God was wanting to set Israel free and remind them of their sonship in Him. And throughout the rest of Scripture, the way that God talks about salvation and enacts salvation is to say this You are no longer a slave to sin, you are a child of God. I welcome you into the home. You are not a slave or a servant of me, you are a son and a daughter. Andrew Murray puts it this way. I put it up on the screen. In the book, Christ in the School of Prayer, Christ delivers us from the curse so that we might become the children of God. Because of what Jesus did, we have access to the sonship that is found in God, our Father. Claiming God as our Father is an act of rebellion against the curse that runs through our veins. The curse that Adam and Eve brought on our race many years ago the one that tells us lies about who we are in our position with God. Prayer begins with recalibration. It reminds us that God is our father and we are his children. Jesus continues, Matthew chapter six, verse nine. May your name be kept holy. King James, hallowed be thy name. When was the last time you used hallowed in a sentence, right? We don't just kind of throw that one out there on the regular. But maybe around Halloween, we'll talk about that. When scripture says, hallowed be thy name, or may your name be kept holy. Hallowed means set apart. It means sanctified. It means kept holy. It's, it's something other. And name represents reputation and character. The hallowing of God, God's name is perhaps a less a request of him and more a response from us. Think about it this way. If you're an employee of an organization, ones that wear uh, uniforms and name tags, when you sign up and you say, I want to work for your company and they hire you, you likely sign a piece of paper that says, I will abide by the policies and procedures of this company. And now every time you go, whether you're wherever you're working, Starbucks, Target, Walmart, whatever place you've got a name tag and carry the uniform and the logo of that company, you are a representative of that organization. You carry the name of your employer. And to the extent that you lift on, carry on the reputation and name of your employer is the extent to which you will have a job at the end of the year. You tracking with me? By following, these are the ways that we go. I'm holding on to, I'm, I'm holding up the name. God, it's the same way with, with God and with his presence. We carry on the reputation in the name of God. It's our responsibility to keep his name holy. Not in an overhanded way where We're like, ah, I've got all this stuff to bear. No, 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 no. By the way we live, the world will know who God is. Because he should do something to change us. Setting God's name apart means that we live differently. Remember, we've moved from slaves to to members of the family. Michael Green puts it this way in the Message of Matthew commentary. His name is to be hallowed. That is to say, we long for his name or character to have top place in the world and in people's hearts. That we hold high the name of God. That his name would have top place in our hearts. You see, prayer begins with reconstitution. There's a different way that we live. Imagine for a moment, just think in your mind, what constitutes a really well-lived day for you? A day that you think back in your memory or you look forward to one day and say, that is just the perfect day. What happens on that day? Is it getting through your to-do list? Is it Making sure that everything that you had on your agenda for that day was accomplished? Is it having some fun and some adventure? Uh, Is it having a surprise? Whatever that is for you, think about that in your mind. But then think for a moment. Does hallowing God's name reconstitute what it means to live a life worth living? That there's a reconstitution of what is actually worth living? Do the activities I participate in Are they a part of the drama, of the restoration, of the reputation of our Father before the nations? Do I contribute to the perpetuation of the name, the character, and the reputation of the God of the universe? Would people look at me and say, no, I know who that is. They're connected to Jesus. Prayer changes The way that we live begins with reconstitution. May your name be kept holy is a reminder to us of a resetting of uh, everything in our lives. That now what is most important in our lives is not my own priorities, but the priorities of the king of the universe, the God that we serve on a daily basis. Our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Imagine for a moment, All of creation giving adoration to God. That everything in the universe is in alignment with Jesus and who he is. Think for a moment that the majority of the universe is, even though it's sin-touched. But there's one group of beings who actively perpetuate the opposite. Us, having free will and a choice to serve God or to not, often defy the name of God by the way that we live. But imagine for a moment, all creation made new, all of heaven touching earth, and we sing in adoration, to God be the glory, great things he has done. When we pray, it reconstitutes for us what are great things. It reminds us that God is God and I am not. This model prayer is an invitation to participate in the work of God. N.T. Wright puts it this way in his book, The Lord and His Prayer. We are called to be the people through whom the pain of the world is held in the healing light of the love of God. If the prayer that we experience that's driven us to our knees does not then drive us to alleviate the suffering of the people around us, we've lost our focus on what it means to live well. It's a beautiful imagery that N.T. Wright puts out. I read it this week and I had to stop. We are called to be people through whom the pain of the world is held in the healing light of the love of God. Do we believe it? In our prayers, do we hold up those who are in pain in front of the healing light? Say, God, would you do what you do best and give us good things, give us healing, give us restoration? Earlier this week, we had a friend of ours visiting from Michigan. Got really close to him in seminary, and uh, we had a guy's day. It was him, myself, and Micah, who's going to be four months old next month next week. Can you believe that? Four months old already. The dude is like already asking for a driver's license. So um, we we said, you know, let's let's do something today. And so we find this this museum uh, in the in DFW area. That's a it's a flight museum. It's like, oh, this sounds fun. Mike is going to get to go to his first airplane museum. I remember them as a kid. This is going to be great. The guy slept through the whole thing. Like, come on. Like, well, I don't blame him. He's four months old. All right. Next time though, son, next time. We're going to the museum, we get our tickets and we talk to the curator, one of the the hosts that's there and he's telling us about the museum. He says over here on this side, there's some history of flight and you just kind of walk around this way in this counterclockwise fashion and you'll just walk through history. Go up to the upper deck, you can watch some planes landing and taking off and then over on this other side, there's, there's some history about the airline and then there's also a flight simulator. I was like, that sounds really cool. So we start on the one side and we, we go around the history and we, we get up to, the, to, the, to watch the planes landing. And kind of in the back of my mind is like, I'm excited for this flight simulator. You know, as a kid, computer games, like it's fun. We're going to try it. We'll try it out. And we get back to the other side and begin to look. And I was like, it's a museum. There's people here. There's got to be a line for this thing. We've got to wait for it. It's a flight simulator after all. And we're on the other end of the, the museum where we're the only ones on the other side. And it's like, what gives? Where's, where's this flight simulator? And I walk around and I see something that looks like it could be it. And it's a, this cockpit that's, you know, been cut off. And there's kind of a gate to it. And there's a seat with a joystick in the middle and all that. And I said, fantastic, here it is. And I walk up to the flight simulator, like go up to the steps. And I go to move the gate. And the gate's closed. And it's a type of gate that is not meant to be opened. Because the flight simulator was an artifact of what pilots had been training on before, not one for visitors of the museum to actually use. Imagine just like, "Ah!" I was like, "Well, wow. but think about this for a moment. When we're called to live our Christian lives, God does not call us to be artifacts in a museum that serve no purpose other than to gather dust and to commemorate what has happened before. What God calls us to is active participation. I was looking for a flight simulator that was plugged in and I was gonna be able to use. Disappointed that it was just, I mean, it was a cool artifact. Like once I got over that, then you kind of like read the thing and it's like, oh, that's what it was used for, it was great. What our world needs is not Christians who are relegated to one wing of the museum as artifacts of what God has done. What the world needs is Jesus followers who are sold out on the kingdom, reign, and rule of Christ. And that by their lives, through prayer, they live day in and day out, keeping the name of God holy, lifting up his name and reputation. And it's not a burden, it's a joy. To God be the glory, great things he has done. He's done them in your life and he's doing them in my life and he's doing them in your life and he's done them in my life. That's the God that we serve. And in the model prayer, the two first lines of it is a reminder for us to get in the secret place and recalibrate our lives. Remember who God is and who we are. And allow that recalibration to reconstitute for us what it means to live well. Prayer. Prayer helps us to live differently. When we get in that secret place, we will not leave changed. We need God's help. He's the one calling, he's the one sending, and it will make all the difference.